want to start off by uh, just saying thank you to uh, John. Uh, what an incredible uh, video. And I know that over the years that I've known uh, John, he has done just such an awesome job of really just supporting all the different ministries uh, with some incredible videos uh, throughout the years. So very appreciative of, of him and what he does. Um, so I, as I watched the, the previous video on Junior Church, uh, there are a rush of memories that kind of come back to me. Uh, when I was, uh, first started going to this church, I was asked to help out in the children's department, and uh, the Junior Church was the first ministry that I was a, a part of. And I have to be honest with you, that's kind of where my rock star career started, was amongst the children. Uh, that's the great thing about Junior Church, is they always make you feel like a rock star. Um, but there were many great things that I learned in junior church, things that I continue to carry with me in my own life, um, but also where I carry to other places. I, uh, I went, I'm, this, the end of this week, I'm leaving to go to Thailand, and I will tell you what, there are some songs that I've done in junior church, songs like Pharaoh, Pharaoh, and God's Not Dead, and the uh, very famous one, Tati, Tata, um, that really have made me a worldwide star. Uh, and I kid you not, when I went to Africa last summer, all they wanted to do was ta-ti, ta-ta. It's a silly song. You're moving around, sticking your tongue out, and, and just really being goofy. But they love it. And in Thailand, they love it. In Peru, they loved it. So um, anything else, they don't care too much about, but as long as you do ta-ti, ta-ta. So uh, it's, I enjoy it, but I, I am really appreciative of the time that I had uh, in junior church, because God does truly teach you many things through children. Well, this week we're continuing our series on things that matter. Uh, last week, Ryan spoke on turning the other cheek, an eye for an eye, and giving to those who ask of you. And uh, I know that as I listened to his message, I thought, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put together a little committee that follows Ryan around and really test to see if he, he, he follows this stuff. So, I'm going to ask Ryan right now if I can have his car. I need some people maybe just to follow him around and kick him and push him and hit him, and we'll see how serious he is about this. Um, and I do joke with Ryan about that, but I will say over all the years that I've known Ryan, uh, he has been one that has challenged me spiritually because he is one that I truly believe that really honestly tries to live out uh, what he feels God is calling him to do, um, despite how hard it may at times be or the demand that it has on his life he spoke last week. Um, this week I'm going to speak on prayer. Uh, next week is Dan Syrian. He's going to talk about marriage and divorce, that part of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, very interesting. So please come join us next week as well. Uh, as I get going on this, before we kind of dive into the prayer, I, I, one of my challenges as a teacher is I always try to give my students something to think about as, as we kind of start our lesson. And and today, I want to just give you a few lessons to kind of consider as we go through this. And I have to say that I, I really enjoy our sermon uh, series title, The Things That Matter. And I enjoyed it so much that I thought uh, it would make a great question. So as we begin, I, I do want us to kind of think about this question, um, why things matter. So number one, does this stuff really matter to us? And, and this is something that I ask myself. I mean, every day. I should ask, does this really matter to me? And I think that most of us would absolutely say yes. I mean, that's why we're here, because this matters to us. Um, but then the second one tends to challenge me and hopefully all of us a little bit more. Why does this matter? Okay? 
Why does it matter to me? Why does it matter to you? Ultimately, why does it matter to God? Okay? And as a church, why should this matter for us? All these things that we discuss and that we talk about and, and as we read the Sermon on the Mount and God's Word and today study His prayer, this is a, a question that we have to ask. Why, honestly, does this matter? And hopefully I can offer some words as to why I believe it, it matters to me and hopefully to all of us and even to God because ultimately what matters to God should matter to us and we should seek after those things. So take a moment to just think about that as I share these different verses with you. So let's turn first to Leviticus chapter 20 through 26. And you're going to kind of catch the theme as we go through these. Leviticus 20, 26. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. In Leviticus eleven forty five. God continues, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. So already we're seeing that God rescued his people out of Egypt for a purpose, not just to save them and then to release them, but he had a plan. And his plan was to rescue them, but to turn them into a people that would be holy, a nation of priests that he could use for himself, but also to spread his kingdom throughout the earth. This is the very reason that God rescued Israel from Egypt, led them through the desert, shared his Torah with them. This is the very reason why he made the covenant and married Israel, adorned her with beauty. And even when she was unfaithful, it was the very reason that God sent her into exile and brought judgment upon her is because he is creating a holy nation, a holy bride. I know a lot of times it's easy to, to look at that and say, well, yeah, but that was the Old Testament. That was Israel. Is that God still, in, is that still his intention for all people? Well, we can easily turn to the New Testament writers and, and see what they say. People like Paul, who, who spoke to the Gentiles. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 4, Paul says this, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be home, holy and blameless in his sight. This is incredible. So Paul is speaking and he's saying, even as God was creating the foundations of the earth, this was his intention for us, to create us into a holy people. When they were creating, when God was creating the earth, he said, let us make man in our image, the image of holiness. Paul continues in Ephesians as he's giving instructions to husbands about how they are to love their wives, and he uses Christ as the example. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word, cleansing her, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. What a powerful picture. This whole imagery of us being the bride. And that God wanting to present, or Christ wanting to present us holy, blameless, without blemish, radiant, as a radiant bride. In John 17, Jesus says this, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. 
For them I sanctify myself that they, may, they too may be truly sanctified, to be sanctified, to be made holy. So Paul was just echoing Jesus' words. He was saying, I am being made holy so that these people, therefore I can lead them into holiness, which is essentially what it means to be holy is to be conformed into the image of Christ. And that, that is God's intention for Israel as he brings them back, for all nations that we would become holy. So I guess we have to ask ourselves, does this all matter? And of course we would all say, yes, of course this matters. But why does it matter? Why does it matter to God? Because he has a plan, he has a purpose, he's commanding us to be holy as he is holy. And he's gonna see that plan through because he is sanctifying us through his word. God is making us holy through his very word. So today, as we dive into his word, and every day, as we get into God's word, it is for that purpose, because he is shaping us into the image of Christ through his word and through his spirit. Today, we're gonna look at the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. It's a very important prayer, just as every word in God's word is very important not only because they matter to us because ultimately they show us what matters to God and I believe that this prayer is incredible on many levels but most importantly is because it shows us the heart of God it shows us truly what matters to him and if this stuff matters to him then as we go in we have to say Lord help us to pay attention to every word that you speak help it burn inside of our hearts and align our will with your will and Jesus is going to pray that and teach us to pray that. As we get started and as we look into it, I, w I do have to say that, that preparing the sermon has been difficult for a couple reasons. Number one, obviously, when you get into the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus' words are very challenging. And my number one prayer is, God, help me to do justice to your words. Help me to speak them the way that they were intended to be spoken. And help us to hear them the way that you wanted us to hear them. And as you know, there are words that are, that are very encouraging, but there are also words that are very challenging. And that will challenge the core of who we are, which is good. Because it needs to happen if we are to become holy people. On the other side of it, it's been difficult because, I mean, how do you put the whole prayer into one sermon? You could honestly teach a sermon for each line of this prayer. I mean, it, although it seems like a simple prayer, there is so much depth. And when you look at this prayer in light of everything that's happened in the Bible and that is happening and that will happen, it just brings this prayer to life. So we only get a small inkling of what it really is teaching us. But as we do, I hope to give you kind of a glimpse of what God has taught me and what he is continually teaching me through my own experience, but through what I've learned uh, in his story and what's happening in, in context with the rest of the Bible. As we begin, let us go ahead and pray. Father, we just come before you. We ask that you open our hearts, open our ears, open our eyes, Lord. For you have said even in your word that although the words are spoken, at times, though we see, we may not see, and though we hear, we may not hear. Help us to be a people that hear your voice. Help us to understand your words, Lord. Be they encouragement or be they harsh. May we just seek to live them out, to understand them. Because we know that the purpose of them is to make us holy. Father, 
All of the stuff we're about to read matters to you. So I pray that it matters to us. We pray this in your name. Amen. So let's take a quick look at the prayer. It says it's up on the board. When Jesus was instructing his disciples, he said, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Powerful prayer. As we look at verse 9, the very first verse, Jesus says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Right off the top, Jesus begins the prayer by setting the stage and setting our sights on God. He defines the parameters of our relationship with God. He tells us to address him as our Father, which instantly does two things. Number one, it establishes what kind of relationship that we have with God. It is a relationship of intimacy. As parents, we know the care and the love that we have for our children. How much more magnified is it in God? He calls us his father, and he calls us his children. And we, and we come to him as children come to a father. Is it a relationship of intimacy? But it also does this. It separates him from all other gods, because what other god in history or what God in the present is like the God that we serve, the God that calls his people his children, and he cares for them, he loves them, he has compassion upon them, he disciplines them, and he raises them up. No other God in history. And God takes pride in that. He's very proud of that, that there is no other God. He is not a God like other gods that stands at a distance, that is unconcerned about what is happening with his people. He is our Father. At the beginning of each school year, I have my freshmen write out, and there's probably some freshmen over here too that can relate with this. I have them write out a This I Believe essay. And I always encourage the students to pick a topic that means a lot to them, something that they are passionate about besides video games and Facebook, um, because every paper then would be video games and uh, Facebook. Um, And I'm surprised at what some students pick. Uh, I had two particular girls in my class that decided they wanted to write on a topic that was very sensitive to them. It was the topic of fathers. And they wanted to write specifically about how the father is important in the children's lives within the family. And I think we would all agree with that. So they wrote up their paper, and I have them do a presentation. I give them a chance to share what is on their heart. And as they got up there to present, both girls could not even make it through the presentation. One girl um, just broke down and, and had a difficult time uh, from the beginning. And the reason being is because at a young age, when she was young, five or six years old, her father abandoned her, never saw him again. And as I asked her, I said, do you talk to him now? And she says, no. And so her whole life, she's hungered for that, a father. The other girl, her, her father has been in and out of her life, kind of distant when he's home. Um, she doesn't really talk much to him. And you can tell it's a very sensitive issue to them. And unfortunately, this has kind of become the norm within my classroom is that there are many kids who walk in every day who have had broken relationships, who have lost fathers, who have um, lost their relationship with their father. And it's not very hard to pick them out because most of them, not all of them, but most of them struggle and they hunger. 
Sadly, this is sometimes, as we look around, this has become the norm of our society, that we see so much brokenness within families. We see fathers that have abandoned their children. We see fathers that are distant, whose hearts have turned away. And as all of us know, it is a struggle to be a parent. But if we look at this from a spiritual standpoint, it's easy to see why. If the enemy is going to attack what God is doing, he's going to attack the very core of our society, and that's family. And if he wants to take it deeper, he's going to attack the strength of our families, and that is the father. And not to discredit the mother, because my wife is an incredible mother who is a pillar in our family. But the enemy is attacking the father. When I traveled to other countries, when we went to Peru, you don't see very many men in the church. So it's not just a physical attack, it's a spiritual attack. Because the enemy knows that if he can disrupt our view of what a father is, then it tweaks our idea of, what, of who God is. And so when people without fathers, they come before this prayer, they either pray it with indifference because they have no idea what it means to have a father. Or I've talked to many kids who have said, I don't even want to pray that prayer because if God is like the father I had, I want to have nothing to do with him. And so a lot of times kids grow up seeing God as that. I know there are many people in here who have lived that story, who have lost. But I hope that as we pray this prayer, and Jesus wants us to know that as we pray our Father who is in heaven, that we will understand that our God is not like that. He is faithful. He is just. He is compassionate. He provides. He will never fail you. He will never leave you. And because he is all these things, you know what Jesus calls him? He said he is hallowed, which means that he is holy, set apart to be worshipped and respected and revered. Not because he has to make us, but because that's what we want to do. His character draws us into him. We've been around those people that, that draw us to them. And that's why Jesus says he is holy. But we have to look at it another way, that Jesus also calls him holy, because if God's intention is to turn us into holy people, then he sets our sights on the one who is holy, who defines holiness, and that is God. I love how Jesus starts this prayer by saying, turn your eyes to the one that is your father, that is holy. Because the moment you take your eyes off him is the moment that we forget what holiness is. We lose our way. We stumble or we lapse in our faith. As Jesus continues in his prayer, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Love this part of the prayer. If you have not had the opportunity to go through Hebrews chapter 11, I encourage you to do so. It gives you a quick overview of all the women and men of faith throughout the entire history of the Bible that have stood strong. And they have stood strong because they have had a defining faith in God. But as you look at the end of that chapter, you kind of see that there is something else that they have in common. And this is what we read in chapter 11, verse 13 through 16. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Awesome. 
these men of faith and these women of faith, they looked forward. And although they were not at home, they looked forward into the future kingdom. Peter calls us to live in the same manner. In 1 Peter chapter 3, he says this, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. These verses bring so much encouragement to me, and hopefully they continue to encourage us to move forward, despite the fact that at times our faith becomes difficult. Listen to what Peter says at the beginning. He says, but in keeping with his promise. I don't know about you, but there are times in life when it is very difficult to keep with the promise. Because when you're surrounded by a world that at times does not want to have anything to do with God, it's hard to keep with the promise. We can all probably relate that there are times when faith is just hard to hang on to. It's hard to look forward and to say, God, is this kingdom really coming? Where is it at? It's also easy to latch on to the false promises and the luxuries that this world has to offer. The instant gratification. But these people are a reminder that there is another country we are seeking. A heavenly country that we desire. A country that is nothing like this world. It is a place where righteousness dwells, where God dwells. And this is the country that we look forward to. And, only, and although only we see it in part, because that's what Paul says, though we only see in part, we hang on to this part. I know that I do. And every day as we pray this prayer, we cling to this desperately. And like the people of faith, we welcome it from a distance because it keeps us pushing forward until it comes in fullness, which it will. God's kingdom will fully come and his will will be done. But with that said, let us keep in mind that we do not wait passively We do not bury our head in the sand and just expect that someday it'll just show up. The Greek word for will is thelema. And here's what it means. It says, what one wishes or has determined shall be done. So your will or God's will is what will or what he has determined will be done. And what does that include? The purpose of God to bless mankind through Christ. His will and his purpose is to bless us through Christ. But look at what number two says under that, of what God wishes to be done by us. Commands and precepts. We are a part of God's kingdom. We are active participants in his will. And so every day as we pray, your kingdom come and your will be done, we do not pray this passively, just waiting around. Rather, we pray it actively. We say everything that we learn in your word, we are going to try to live out here to make your kingdom a reality in our lives. We pray that in your world of darkness, in this world of darkness, sorry, that his kingdom will be activated in our hearts and that we will be exactly what he called us to be, salt and light. And as Paul says, ambassadors for Christ. He will give us the strength to do this, but you and I know that this is a difficult task. It's a battle every single day. Which is why I believe Jesus in his next part of his prayer says, pray for God to give you bread. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Daily. This prayer now shifts to the needs and the expectations of believers. 
I think it's interesting that what Jesus says here and what he says throughout his prayer directly connects to what happens throughout the Old Testament, and specifically with the story of Israel. Okay? This part of the prayer can be directly linked to the experience that Israel went through in the desert when they were given manna. And in this, is, this part of the, uh, and this story is very significant to us today in our understanding of this line of the prayer. In Exodus, let me read chapter 16, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. So God instructed them, just enough for that day. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Verse 35, the Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to the land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. Moses continues, and he he reminds the people in Deuteronomy chapter 8, he gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. So obviously when we pray that God gives us our daily bread, we are asking God to take care of our needs, spiritually and physically, just as he did with the Israelites. But as I continue to look into the story, there were other purposes to God giving them a daily ration. The second purpose, if we notice it, is that God was trying to keep them humble. You and I know what happens when we're given much. At times, it's easy to become proud. It's easy to look upon the accomplishments and say, look what I did. Look what my work accomplished me. Israel needed to stay humble, and God is doing the same thing with us by helping us to depend on him every single day. The verse is not up here, but if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 14, God warns the people. He says, you are about to go into a land, and I am about to bless you, to give you plenty. You will have all that you need. But he says, be careful, because you will become content. And when you become content, you become proud. And when you become proud, you forget who I am and what I've done for you. I can relate with that. There are times in my life that it's easy just to say, to forget God to get so caught up in my own world and my own work that I forget that he is the one who provides. He gives and he takes away. The second purpose or the third purpose is he wanted to test Israel to see if they would continue to trust him, remain faithful, dependent, and honest. Unfortunately, we see that they didn't. Some tried to hoard everything. Some went out and they took more than they needed. Others, they complained about the menu. They didn't like the fact that God just kept feeding them manna. Okay? Others looked back and they said, well, in, Israel, or in Egypt, we got fed this. It was a lot better in Egypt. They grumbled and they complained. Some didn't believe that God was going to provide and keep his promise, so they continued to test God. So when we pray, we pray with the understanding that God is not only providing our needs, but He is keeping us humble, that he is testing at times our faith. Are you willing to come to me, to depend on me every single day for what you need? Even when times get rough and tough, is your faith going to remain? Israel ate manna in the desert the entire time. But we see also, too, in Joshua that when they arrived, the manna was no more. 
Manna at times is a reminder that we're not home yet. We need God every day. There will come a time when we enter that land. Jesus continues, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Verse 12, as we reflect on the kingdom, God's kingdom coming, and his will being done on this earth, there are many things that we could say that God intends for us to do or that he wills for us to do. His word is full of stuff. But one thing that Jesus seems to highlight, not just in this prayer, but all throughout the New Testament, is forgiveness. First our own, and then our forgiveness of others. And this is the point that we cannot miss. The two are inseparable, and Jesus is going to make that clear. In 1 John 1, 7 through 10, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim to have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. In Acts, Peter calls out, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. God is clear and he's very serious about repentance of sin. His goal is to make us holy as he is holy. And if that is the goal, then sin must be acknowledged and it must be eradicated from our lives every day. And John clears up any confusion. For anybody that thinks that, hey, I'm not walking in sin, he says, you are a liar. And you make God out to be a liar because we all have fallen short. But we serve a God that is loving and knows that we are frail and that is willing to offer that forgiveness and not only to forgive us, but to purify us. He doesn't just, want, uh, he doesn't just offer to do that, but he wants to do that if we are willing. We must seek forgiveness for our own sins. But then Jesus carries it a step further. He says, we must forgive others. And again, the two are inseparable, and he drives this point home right after the prayer. He says this in, in chapter 6, verse 14, Matthew. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When I read that, I thought, wow, this is a difficult saying because we all know how at times, how impossible forgiveness uh, seems to be. I know in my own life, there have been things that have happened that have made forgiveness nearly impossible. But Jesus commands it. And as much as I've tried to dance around this verse, this is not the only place that he instructs us. He tells parables about this. He is very clear. And if you follow the logic, it's easy to see why. Because we as people, we expect God to forgive our sins. We come before him and say, Father, forgive me of everything that I've ever done. But yet we can't forgive a person for one thing that they've done to us. I promise, the sin in my life before God is probably so much more greater than the sin that that one person that I can't forgive is to me. And I speak for myself. I understand that for many people, we say, there have been things in your life that maybe have been unbearable. And this is something that we have to personally wrestle with God because it's not easy. And that's why I believe Jesus included it in his prayer because he knew it wasn't easy. But he demands or he commands us to forgive others. Finally, to close out his prayer, he says, lead us not into temptation. 
but deliver us from the evil one. I think it's fitting that Jesus ends with this call for protection, for deliverance. Because honestly, I believe that if we are praying these things and if we are seeking to live out God's commands, the Sermon on the Mount, whatever it may be, his entire word, if we're living these things out, then it is inevitable. We will face trials. We will face temptation of all kinds. And there are reasons why. Reason number one, because on one side, we are weak and frail creatures. We are prone to sin. Number two, on the other side, the enemy will do everything he possibly can to keep us from reaching our destination, to prevent us, prevent God from doing what he wants to do with us, and that's to make us holy. That has been his intent from, since the beginning of time. Reason number three, at times we are tested. God allows us to go through testing to refine our faith, to strengthen our faith. And I know at times as Christians that's hard to accept we think that, well, I'm with God. I shouldn't be going through anything. Or if I am going through something, God must be mad at me. But at times, God allows us to go through things. And you can find numerous stories throughout the Bible from beginning to end where believers were tested, where God allowed them to go through things, to test their faith. We are destined to face many trials and temptations in our pursuit to holiness. And Paul gives us a clear picture of what this looks like and also as a warning to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to close out with this. Verse 5 through 12. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. And again, here Paul is connecting this whole idea of temptation and tests back to what happened in the desert with Israel. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as an example to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is some of them, uh, uh, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Man, another verse that's like, wow. I can imagine what the lunch was like after that. Probably be tough to even want to walk out of your house after hearing Paul say something like that. But there's a reason why Paul is sharing these harsh words and sharing this example. And the reason is because this stuff matters. Temptations and trials matter to us. They matter to God. There's a reason why Jesus instructs us to pray that God deliver us, that he lead us not into temptation or to testing, but also that he delivers us from the evil one. He even prayed in John chapter 17, for God to deliver his followers. He said, Father, I do not want you to take them out of the world, but I ask that you deliver them from the evil one. There were so many temptations that ruined Israel and that every day seek to ruin us. Idolatry, grumbling that we see, immorality. And there's one that I think oftentimes we overlook, and that's testing in the sense of man testing God. 
Satan came before Christ when he was tempted in the desert and said, hey, if you just jump off the walls of the temple, God will send his angels and he'll rescue you. And you know what Jesus said to him? Do not put the Lord your God to the test. In the garden, Satan tried to get Adam and Eve to test God. Did God really say? At times in our lives, we test God out of unfaithfulness. Jesus emphasizes all of this, but let me just say this. The reason that Paul, I believe, emphasizes this, why Jesus emphasizes it, is because temptation, these things are things that we ought to have reverence for. We should not dabble. We should not play because they can destroy. We should remain firm and strong when we are tested. There's a... Uh, a book that I read a few years ago about a woman who, for some reason, I don't know why, she decided to watch Christian Broadcast Network for 24 hours straight. Um, interesting to me, but she said uh, as she was watching, this commercial kept coming on, and they were selling stickers, stickers that had the picture of the devil on it. And you take the sticker and you put it on the bottom of your foot so that way you could stomp the devil. Or you could put it on your car tire and you can run over the devil. Um, all these, you know, silly things. And I, you know, I kind of chuckled and I laughed. But to me, it's a sign of how lightly at times we take evil and the evil one. And though we know that God protects us, we have to understand that the evil one has one, one goal, and that's to destroy. When Jesus was speaking to his disciples, there became a, a discussion over who would become the greatest and you want to know what, and this is in Luke chapter 22, you want to know what Jesus said to Peter? He said, Simon, Simon, Satan right now is asking to sift all of you like wheat. And he says, I pray for you, Simon, for God to deliver you. Even amongst his disciples, he had to say, I have to pray for you, for your protection, because we do not see the world beyond. Fortunately, Paul's passage ends with a ray of hope. And this is where we'll end. In verse 13 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. God is in charge. And though at times he may allow the enemy to have his way in certain things, as we see in various stories, Job, God is in control. And as we pray for protection, it will come. And God won't always just grab us and rescue us, but he will provide a way out to test. So as we pray, we pray for God to protect us from temptation and from the evil one. So as you go through the prayer, I, my challenge is this week as a church and as individuals that we take whatever you can from that. And hopefully it takes you to different levels and different understandings of maybe where Jesus was going. As we close out, let us just pray this prayer. Lord God, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, those who sin against us. Father, we ask for you to lead us not in temptation, into temptation or, or into tests or trials, but that you deliver us from the evil one. Father, I just pray that at some point 
that we will look at each of these points very clearly and that we will pray them honestly. Why? Because they matter to you and they should matter to us. We thank you, Lord. Pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you.